0: Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Now, I have had a number of shows on DNA that have focused on the science of DNA, standards, communication, and analysis. However, I have never addressed the issues of the social life of DNA as written in a new book by Dr. Alondra Nelson. Doctor Alondra Nelson is Dean of Social Science and Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Columbia University. The social like of DNA takes us on an unprecedented journey into how the double helix has wound its way into the heart of the most urgent contemporary social issues around race. These cutting-edge DNA-based techniques, she reveals, are being used in a myriad ways, including grappling with the unfinished business of slavery to foster reconciliation, to establish ties with African ancestral homelands, to rethink and sometimes alter citizenship, and to make legal claims for slavery reparations specifically based on ancestry. Weaving together keenly observed interactions with root seekers alongside illuminating historical details and revealing personal narratives the social life of DNA show that genetic genealogy is a new tool for addressing old and enduring issues. So let me give a warm welcome to Doctor Alandro Nelson to research at the National Archives and beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Alondro.
1: Thank you. That is a warm welcome, Bernice. I'm so grateful for the invitation to speak with you tonight. Well, I am looking forward to this
0: discussion. And let's begin, or at least you begin, by defining what you mean by the social life of DNA.
1: By the social life of DNA, I was trying to capture what I was seeing in my research. So for about a decade, I spent time with conventional genealogists and um, genetic genealogists as that industry was just starting to emerge. And, um, you know, I was often was. people would say to me, well, people are getting new identities with genetics. And that was partly true. But it was also the case that the meanings of the genetic test became important in the social context that people were, were using them. So it's the way that the test traveled around in different places Um, and different uses um, that became as important as the information that the companies were providing as well. And so I really wanted to, so what the book is really about and what the the, the title, The Social Life of DNA is meant to capture is the social meaning and the social practice that occurs around uh, genetic ancestry testing. Yes. In fact, today on
0: Facebook, you know, people are sharing quite a bit And one of the friends on Facebook shared that she discovered that her father was 100% African. And you should have seen the responses. Oh, congratulations. Wow, this is just amazing. So I know that, I mean, you have written, you know, about this whole explosion and this interest in DNA root-seeking in the United States and stating that it stems from our history of a a nation of immigrants and migrants. So please say more about this. Yeah, so I think that we can think about
1: genealogy having several historical periods. So we might think about a a kind of ancient biblical period, if any of us, you know, those of us who remember our Old Testament in which, you know, this David's son begat this person, begat that person. So there's the biblical records. Then of course there's a history of um, genealogy that's about uh, royal lineages and about fam, you know how who who is the royal family, to whom does the crown belong after this person? How do we trace royal lineage? And then you have um, certainly in the 19th century, but by the time we get to Alex Haley and Roots in the late 1970s, a real democratization of genealogy. More people are doing it. Most people can do it. Um, it goes from being a kind of blue blood practice to um, a very common um, practice. And so now today it's become even more democratized still because, you know, when I started doing my research with conventional genealogists, you know, we would take trips to archives and libraries. We were using microfilm and microfiche, and people would talk about spending their summer vacations at, you know, small libraries in Nova Scotia or wherever they had inferences, inferences about where their family might be. And now people can get information. Um, you know, more, you know, depending on your perspective, that's very reliable or, or less reliable, that says things like you have African ancestry or you have 100% European ancestry. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of effort and it doesn't take travel. It takes, you know, a, a DNA sample um, sent to a company um, and, you know, and then people get the results. And so for people who, you know, for a country like the United States in which, um uh, with the exception of the indigenous people here, most of people come from somewhere else, either voluntarily or um, in a compelled fashion, like the descendants of slaves. There's always, you know, these kinds of societies. I think always have a particularly particular root-seeking, um, I think, uh, practice that underlies them, anyways. But it's particularly acute for reasons that we know for um, African Americans, and so I think that you know genealogy has been a kind of human practice for as long as we as written words go back to the bible but there are different historical circumstances and social contexts that make them more important um at certain moments yes you're right and you you did
0: mention uh Alex Haley and, and Roots and and so many people and, and I know you said in your own book that you watched it. Certainly I watched it, and many, many other people decided, oh, it's time for me perhaps to start tracing my roots. I want to get back to Africa. I want to find my African ancestor. But, you know, when we think about this whole notion of DNA, I mean, it's been about 15 years since the decoding of the the first draft of the human genome. And mm-hmm. so DNA is being promoted, uh you see it on television even just this week uh on the reel. I don't know if you saw this show where the the five uh hosts of the show were given their DNA. And it no, was almost hilarious <laughs> to just watch them, oh, you're 84% African, you're 83% African, oh, Ghana. I mean, if they were so excited. So it's almost becoming like a mainstream kind of discussion. But, you know, you mentioned this whole issue of racial and ethnic identity, so Say a little bit more about your observations and your research and how people are just reacting to just finding their whole or seeking additional information on their racial and and ethnic identity.
1: Sure. So I I mostly spoke to um, African-Americans who were interested in genealogy. And, you know, one of the things I think that's unique to um, people of African descent who are the descendants of slaves and, the Middle Passage and transatlantic slavery, is that um, we don't have ethnic identities, you know, per se. So African-American, the hyphenated identity, is a continental identity, right? Um, You know, the continent of Africa has dozens of countries. It has hundreds of language groups. um, It has hundreds of ethnic groups. And so although we use African-American in the same way that we use Irish-American or Italian-American, those are nation states with specific languages and language cultures and even, you know, regional cultures that are well known. And so, um, you know, many of the people that I spoke with said they wanted to know more and they felt like they deserved to know more. And even if some of the technology was imperfect and, um, you know, even if it, they had to pool their money together as a family and maybe test, you know, uh, a matriarch at a family reunion or a summer barbecue – that they were going to do it. And even with the questions they might have um, about uh, the technology, some of them, or, you know, the the sort of um, caution that they might approach it with, um, the ability to have even some information at all was was quite uh, valuable and potent. And so um, this really began my journey following people and finding out what they did with their test results. And Um, So the things really range. I mean, some people, you know, the the reactions range from, you know, some people will get, you know, a letter and a set of genetic markers or, depending on the company, a certificate of ancestry or access to a website that gives them, you know, uh, markers and pie charts and graphs um, and sort of print it out and put it in a cabinet somewhere and file it away. You know, some people will take a certificate of ancestry that they might get from, African ancestry and hang it on their wall and a place in their den. and um, but other people sort of take action in the world, and that what i that's why I became really interested in. So some people would immediately travel to uh, the places they the place or places they had been inferred to have some kind of ancestry in. Some people struck up uh, relationships in their local communities. so I write about um, one gentleman who I call Marvin that I encountered who is inferred to be related to an ethnic group in Angola um, and um, finds out that a woman he's been going to school with is from the same community. And they build a friendship that they hadn't built before um, based on his genetic, you know, this new information that he received from doing genetic genealogy. Um, And and then, you know, people, so they travel, they um, make sort of heritage tourism trips to Sierra Leone, to Ghana, to Cameroon. Uh, And then, you know, people try to often create relationships uh, deeper, build, you know, grow deeper in the communities to which they've been inferred to be from. So, you know, I experienced as well, um, you know, accounts of people trying to get dual citizenship, thinking about buying property on the African continent in various countries. Um, And, of course, uh, you know, the sort of apex of these these individual experiences is the experience of the actor Isaiah Washington, who... Um, receives his genetic ancestry testing in 2004. He is uh, being awarded. He receives a a big award from uh, as part of the Pan African Film Festival that takes place every year in Los Angeles. And part of his award swag bag was an African ancestry test kit. And he did mitochondrial and Y chromosome DNA testing in '04. And his mitochondrial yes. test, yes. Um, went to Sierra Leone, and by 2010 he had dual citizenship in Sierra Leone. And we all saw his
0: uh, excitement when he uh, obtained his results. Uh, The great reveal, of which we seem to be seeing a lot of now, but you do uh, indicate in your book that this great reveal started – a long time ago before we're kinda of seeing it now on, on shows like Finding Our Roots and Who Do You Think You Are and uh some of the other quote reality T V shows.
1: But yeah when
0: the when those reveals are made and you've talked to people and you say some of them have really I mean they've taken the ancestral tours back to uh the various uh places on the continent of Africa uh, have you personally had that opportunity to do that with your own uh, ancestral uh, identity?
1: I have not. I traveled to Ghana and um, like in 2007, um, I spent several weeks there, and that was before. I guess for me, you know, part of why I started to do this research on other people's um, experiences is because I'd always felt just deeply African. That had been clear to me. You know, I felt like I was a person of African descent, and I didn't necessarily need, need more evidence of that, although I deeply, uh, you know, respect people who, who feel like they want and deserve more specificity. So I was happy to travel to Ghana, and as, uh, you know, in college I had a, a minor in African history, and um, I also studied Caribbean literature, so I, I had a kind of diasporic sensibility, and I was okay with really embracing all of the African diaspora as something I wanted to get to know, um, better. So, uh, I did, I received, um, I did genetic ancestry testing with African ancestry in 2010 and received a mitochondrial inference to, uh, Cameroon. And I, you know, was soon after, uh, given the opportunity to travel, uh, with a group of people who were, you know, quote unquote, DNA, uh, DNA Cameroonians. Um, and I didn't uh, avail myself of that, of that trip, but, um, uh, but you know who knows? I, I may still yet get the Cameroon. Yes, yes.
0: Now I want to just go into some 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 of the various issues that you have uh, discussed in your book. And the one of them is the research study of the African burial ground in New York City in the early nineteen nineties and what was significant about this discovery of this uh colonial aerial uh burial
1: ground and yeah, this is such a fascinating case study yes, so um in nineteen ninety one in in New York City in lower Manhattan, uh, the federal government is, the General Services Administration is in the process of putting up uh, a new building that would would house various federal agencies like the IRS and other buildings. So it was going to be a federal building. And um, they had done some geological surveys that suggested that there might have been um, a a cemetery for enslaved people that was nearby, but it wasn't, you know, they weren't sure if they would be disturbing it. And so they started some early um, kind of preparation of the site for construction. And, you know, soon after they break ground, they realize that they're working on top of a burial ground that's from colonial New York. And this turns out to be what is now the African Burial Ground National Monument um, in lower Manhattan. Uh, but what's so interesting about this project is that it was um, a, a few years before there had been the discovery of a, an African Burial ground in Philadelphia, and that up to that point, and this was in the late 80s, was the biggest burial ground of African remains that had ever been found. And this site was bigger still. And they exhumed about 400 bodies, but they um, estimate that they go in the 10, 10 thousands, perhaps in the thousands of bodies. And so what happens here is because we're, you know, this is a moment where we're just entering the genome age, um, and so there's very um, you know, primitive but um, effective genetic techniques that are being tried out at this site. Um, and this site happens to be um, a site of researchers, ultimately it's an interdisciplinary research site, so there's some historians and some cultural anthropologists, biological anthropologists, but there's also some people who are trained in molecular biology and genetics and who are going to try to use these early, these now newly evolving techniques to um, Try to make some just broad guesses about where the people buried there might be from, and one of the people on this research team, in fact, the probably the most junior person or among the most junior people on this research team, was the geneticist Rick Kittles, who was doing his Ph.D. in genetics at George Washington uh, University. And um, you know, as a teacher, it's, as a teacher of graduate students, and I, cha- I train doctoral students, it's often the case that they bring the new techniques and they've read the new books that have just come out before you have a chance to get to them. And in this case, it was Rick who, um, relative to his, uh, the other researchers who knew the newer techniques there to the newer ways to amplify and sequence um, ancient DNA, uh, which is still very hard to do, but certainly in, in the, in the mid 1990s was very difficult. And so, um, you know, Rick comes up with a, um, a system, you know, he gathers, um, African DNA that we that that is sort of ethnically um coded from various places so he has some DNA samples from his own research he gets samples from uh other researchers um that who share their data with him he also uses um uh, a, a, you know a, um a public database of, of markers and he creates you know what is a very early reference database of um African DNA African you know that that has not specific nation states or ethnicities, but sort of broad, you know, West African, Bantu, Sub-Saharan African, and these sorts of things. And he is able to take um, for about a dozen of the remains, um, able to get enough DNA from them to, you know, run an analysis that he can compare to this reference database. And at the African burial grounds, there were, um, you know, lots of people involved, activists, politicians in New York City. And there was a hope that, well, two, I think there's two, probably two things worth saying. One was that the local community of activists were very well aware of the history of exploitation of um, Black communities, vulnerable communities, but African American communities in particular with regard to forms of scientific and medical research. But they thought that information could be gleaned using craniometry, using genetic analysis at the site. Um, if people were doing a kind of sensitive and historically grounded interpretation. Um, And uh, they turned to Michael Blakey, the project director, an African-American biological anthropologist who was then running the Cobb Lab, the Montague Cobb Lab at Howard, and Kittles used his genetics um, expertise. And so what Kittles developed there is hoped to be a sort of – free free, nonprofit project by many who are working on the team and many of the local activists. Um, and Kittles um, breaks away from the team um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and decides that he's going to make a commercial enterprise, which becomes the African Ancestry Company, which I think is after Bennett Greenspan, who starts Family Tree TNA, I believe in 2000, is either the second or third direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing company in the United States. Okay, and so um,
0: so, what is your whole perspective on uh, the African ancestry uh, test that's going on right now, versus what some of the other companies are doing with their tests? Because it looks like everybody's getting, you know, very varying results regarding their African ancestry.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's a general problem um, with the industry, I would say. Um, You know, I've been working for, over the last four years I've had, I've been in a working group um, that's pulled together by some people in the American Society for Human Genetics and some other folks. That includes social scientists like me, genetic scientists, and uh, um, uh, some genetic genealogists. And, and, you know, what's at issue is that there's no, kind of gold standard. So what are the standards and and what are the mm-hmm. you know how can we sort of verify and say that something is true or more reliable or less reliable? So there's a more general, you know, when you have companies that um in an information age when your database is your trade secret, you know, and you don't want to tell people exactly what your algorithm is or exactly what markers you're using um because that that's your market edge. It gets really complicated um and so and a kind of, you know, in a peer-reviewed science setting at a university like I work at, you know, people would have to be very transparent about their data and about the algorithms and the sets of markers and these sorts of things. And um, that really continues to vary in the DTC, um, genetic uh, ancestry testing market. So, um, Yeah. Right, and, and although, you know,
0: tonight's show is not to focus on how many markers and whose test is more reliable than the next test, we certainly want to uh, explore the fact that people are testing, people are getting results, and some people have to actually determine, you know, what's what's the most reliable test for mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, so let's... Uh, take a quick break and then come back because you also address other issues in your book reparations reconciliation and so i really want us to get into that discussion as it relates to the social life of dna so we're going to take a quick break and then come right back okay at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This episode is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. Start your book journey with the totally free video training at writebooks.sellnow.com backslash video training series. Now, you have been listening to author Alondra Nelson discuss the social life of DNA, race, reparations, and reconciliation after the genome. So why don't you continue your discussion of the social life of DNA by talking about the former Pellman versus Fleet Boston's um reparation class action suit, and what does that have to do with DNA?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to so one of the more fascinating things is that I um embarked on this research, thinking i was gonna I was going to be following mostly individuals and their individual stories, and that's certainly a lot of what the book entails um but I realized that people were that there were efforts to use genetic ancestry testing results to do kind of more significant, not that family history isn't significant, but, you know, larger scale um, historical or, uh, historical and political and social work. And, you know, part of this uh, occurred, I, it first came to, um, to my attention when I would interview people and I would ask them, you know, how they came to choose this genetic ancestry testing company versus another, why they trust this company if they do, Uh, Why they think what they're doing is important And they would say, well, you know, I I heard about the African burial ground So it was very important to many of the people that I spoke to That, uh, you know, the genetic ancestry testing company African Ancestry emerged out of this um, Quite historical, important, archaeological, historical site About colonial um, enslaved people in New York And similarly, a few people would say to me Well, I heard something about this reparations case And it's linked to that And so I really was following these genetic ancestry test results as they were really winding their way into these social issues. So I, um, so in 2002, um, a, a woman named Deidre Farmer-Palman um, and seven other people um, form a class. They had some of these suits had been filed at lesser, lower courts, um, uh, form a class and file a class action suit against um, Fleet Boston, Lloyds of London, and 18 other multinational corporations that in some form existed during the era of slavery and that there was evidence that they exist today and profited from the, the slave trade. And some of the profits were from transporting enslaved people on CSX trains. some of the profits would come from, you know, um, earlier subsidiaries of a company like Aetna, ensuring slaves, enslaved men and women as property on behalf of slave owners and these sorts of things. And so Deidre Farmer-Pailman um is someone who was a gene- is a genealogist, but she was also always interested in reparations politics and felt uh, like this is something she wanted to devote to devote a lot of her life to. She um, goes to she puts herself through uh, law school at-, at the Brooklyn Law School in New York City, and she um, goes to law school with the mission of learning of learning enough about the law and sort of really a- approaches to the law that could bring a case forward. So in 2002, she succeeds in bringing this case forward to a, a, a New York uh, district court. Um, and uh, immediately there were obviously the defendants had, you know, lots of big white-shoe lawyers and also um, uh, lots of, uh, of um, uh, complaints that they wanted to make against the case that they that was put forward. And one of the um, complaints was or one of the defenses that they put up was that these eight plaintiffs didn't have standing. They couldn't. Prove that they were the descendants of particular enslaved people um, who were transferred on these trains that were owned by CSX or insured by a former subsidiary of Aetna, that they didn't have proof to show that specifically they were related to specific people who had been um, enslaved people and who had been enslaved people who in some way made profit for these companies. So the court, uh, the the case is dismissed. On the grounds of standing and a few other grounds, um, in 2003, and but it's dismissed without prejudice, which means they can bring back a narrower a, a the a, a case again. So they bring back a narrower case um, against a, a fewer number, about four companies. Um, and uh, in this case, they introduce genetic ancestry testing as evidence as proof of their standing. So in the first case, the judge, when the first dismissal, the judge says that they can't, quote, unquote, merely allege that they are the descendants of slaves. Like, this is not enough for the court. And so they set out on a mission to prove that they're not just merely alleging that they're the descendants of slaves. And uh, Farmer Paleman had been um, a graduate student at George Washington around the same time as Rick Kittles, and they had some interactions there, and she knew about his work. And she and one of the other plaintiffs um, go to the African Ancestry Company. They show up at the office in Washington, D.C., as Gina Page recalled to me, and, you know, say that they're doing this reparations case and they want to purchase genetic ancestry testing. And so they um, purchase the test and the plaintiffs get their test results and they enter them as evidence. Um, in this second, more narrow case, as evidence of their standing, as their, uh, the, you know, the, as the standing. Is. And so the the some of the findings are um, that one is inferred to be related, uh, has, uh, have ancestry in the Niger, another in the Gambia, um, and other places in West Africa. And so the court has to weigh this evidence. And, it, you know, courts are in some ways used to weighing um, genetic evidence. They do them all the time in criminal cases. Of course, we do it. With paternity testing uh, and um, and uh, family court, but this was the first time that I could find that genetic ancestry testing had ever been introduced as evidence in the court, and certainly in a civil court case. And so the court has to the judges, you know, um, an appellate judge has to uh, a group of appellate judges have to hear the case. And in the end, um, and this is in um, 2006, the court says that these tests are not. Uh, specific enough that they they sort of paint with too broad a brush to prove specific ancestry, so what the court was after um, is something that you know looks like a pedigree, like a conventional genealogy pedigree that would say mm-hmm. uh, you know this person was your mother and your grandmother and your great great grandmother and go back and you can go back with great specificity to the person who was enslaved, and then you can match that specificity up with a specificity with regard to the company that made profits off this specific person. And, you know, certainly genetic ancestry testing, not the type of mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome testing that African ancestry does can really provide this. And even it would be not impossible, but, you know, it would be difficult, but not impossible with autosomal testing um, matched up with genealogy records. I mean, it would take some doing, but it might be possible. And so the court, um, uh, dismisses the case uh, um, again on these grounds, but again without prejudice. So the the case is effectively stalled. But what I find interesting about this, the, the actual lawsuit, fashion action, action suit, and the case as a case study, is that within a year or two of the introduction of you know when genetic ancestry testing, it's really just getting getting off the ground in the United States, right? Um, and certainly within a year of the introduction. And the emergence of the African Ancestry Company, you already have uh, people of you know uh, uh, using these tests to sort of try to think about historically about the present, right? Using these tests to put them in motion in the world to solve issues that are longstanding. I mean, debates, struggles, challenges around reparations. Go back several hundred years, and so it strikes right. me that with that was so soon after the introduction of this new technology, it's immediately put to the to the youth or to try to leverage, um, uh, to find leverage in this reparations, this long-standing, generations-long reparations struggle. And so that was a case in particular that um, really led me to think about you know why we why why genetic ancestry testing is important. So of course it's important because Family history is important to people, those people who know things about their family and those who do not. But it also struck me that genetic ancestry testing is also being used in these kind of – to say things about our larger national family, right, not just our nuclear families, um, generations back. And um, to, you know, cause a reckoning or to shine a light on um, the history of slavery both in individual families – um but also uh in, in sort of the, the social and political world right and i mean it
0: it is such a complex uh issue and i have a uh, there's a comment coming out of the chat that it would be uh quite a challenge considering that to to many just to find slave era research is, is complex
1: Absolutely. and so Absolutely.
0: it's well, and you know as as a genealogist uh how difficult it is for some people to even identify uh their ancestors uh at any point I mean you just have to understand how to go about doing this, so it is something
1: that well it's it's something to talk about. Uh, definitely. It's something to talk about. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who knows what will happen with this case? You know, the last time I, I spoke to to Deidre, former Pellman, fairly recently, and, you know, the case is stalled in part because they've run out of, of um, resources to try the case. But, you know, who's not to say that there's not, um, uh, you know, if you found the right family Um, And we could sort of, you know, it's also not just the genealogy records, it's also the corporate archive records, right? So you would need to find Aetna's Mm -hmm. records or CSF's records, the name of a particular enslaved person, and you know how difficult it can be to find, you know, naming practices during slavery were very complicated too. So, um, you know, it would be complicated in a lot of ways, but um, as the technology gets better and the ability to, we get more sophisticated in our ability to, you know, to better match um, conventional and genetic genealogy, um, it, it certainly might be possible in the future. Right, right. And, you know,
0: you also bring up the whole issue of reconciliation. Yes. So talk about that. Tell us more about, you know, your
1: observations and your thoughts sure. on that. So I, one of the more... Poignant takeaways for me and, and talking to, you know, as I said, I, I come to, I came to this project and um, as someone who was interested in genealogy, I had been the, the person in my family as a child who, you know, would try to get the opportunity to talk to my elders and hear what they would tell me about their past and their families. So it always been an interest of me. And I think, you know, part of the reason I'm a scholar is because there's, there's a, you know, it has to do with, you know, a, it's, a, it's a kind of manifestation of my genealogical impulse. But I never, I didn't feel in the same way, that, you know, the, the sort of dozens and dozens and dozens of, as the dozens and dozens and dozens of people I interviewed, a kind of deep longing and nagging need to know. And I realized that even that that individual desire was about a kind of reconciliation, about you know the fact that we don't take, we haven't taken, I think, as seriously as we might, what that particular lack of information, how that can be a kind of trauma for people, how it can be a wound for people um, that remains unhealed. Um, You know, we in in the sort of in the United Nations now, you know, people are, it's it's considered a human right. One has a right to identity, right? Um, And, you know, you have Mm -hmm. generations of African Americans who just don't have that identity and to whom that really matters. And I think we haven't had a reconciling with that as a nation about what that, you know, what that means and what that might feel like. And, you know, we might, another way of thinking about it is, um, it's often the case when I've talked about this research that people will say, "Oh, you know, I'm not African American, but you know, I'm adopted, or my mother was adopted, and it sounds very similar, right?" And so it's a similar kind of impulse and a and a, and I think a, a yearning for identity. And I think that we what I saw is that that individual level kind of identity really scales up to our nation, and that we don't. So part of what the you know that's become more prominently known. Um, since uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote his uh, essay in the Atlantic on uh, reparations in 2014. And of course, the most recent one is, you know, the very issue that John Conyers, the the congressman, you know, has brought up for, you know, years and years and years, um, a, a bill that would just allow for a conversation about reparations and racial slavery. Like we can't even have a conversation about it. And so I feel like the fact, for example, that within a year, of genetic ancestry testing from the African Ancestry Company being on the market, it was being used towards uh, the cause of reparations really suggested to me that there are these deep-seated, long-standing, unresolved, undiscussed issues about our nation's Mm -hmm. past. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not to say that, you know, what happened is the truth and reconciliation process that happened in South Africa was a perfect process. We know years later that it was not and there were problems with it. But, you know, I think that we have to sort of acknowledge that the effort to have a public airing about, uh, you know, social and racial trauma in a national community is an important and brave thing to do and one that we've not been able to do um, yet in this country. And so I want to understand people's uses of African ancestry testing both at the individual level Um, And the sort of level of reparations or the the sort of um, I write about an NGO, the Leon Sullivan Foundation, that um, for a time was encouraging African-Americans to use genetic ancestry testing to be sort of reconciled with um, uh, people uh, they are inferred to be related to on the African continent and to build together, to build schools, to build philanthropies, to build, you know, to, to engage in various social and economic development projects. And so I want to understand, you know, for me this offers a reason why genealogy is important, why it's not just a fad, and the sort of deeper kind of meanings and significance of it uh, uh, today, and particularly for African-American communities. Why? Right. And there, there are several comments coming out
0: of the chat, and one of the comments Great. is that, you know, it's so true regarding what you're saying about the past and unresolved issues uh, that we we just haven't dealt with them the way we perhaps could when we're talking about reconciliation. Um, there's also a, a comment that is asking the question, really, do you have to have deep I mean, what kind of of evidence would be required to receive uh, reparations?
1: I think that remains to be seen. I mean, there's been various cases. I mean, I do a kind of short gloss in the book of the histories of various attempts to accomplish reparations. And, um, you know, so one, you know, that you can't sue the federal government because of the, the doctrine of sovereign immunity, So you can't... Um, to the government can't sue itself for reparations. So that avenue has been cut off for a very long time. Um, one can, you know, if one has, I think you probably will have a much better shot with, um, you know, I write a little bit about the Polite family, which is the family, the descendants of the little girl Priscilla, who we know from slave records, from ship manifests, was brought from what is now contemporary Sierra Leone to the Carolina Low Country, And that family sort of knows, they've worked with historians and anthropologists and, um, they know kind of their full family tree. So a family like that, I think, um, if they could also prove, you know, they have got the family tree intact, mm-hmm. but, you know, do, can they find the corporate genealogy, right? So there's kind of, it's a, you know, it's a dual burden. It's not just the genealogy piece. Um, it's also, uh, you know, can you prove that, you know, Priscilla, let's say, was, um Insured as property by a subsidiary of, ethics, you know, uh, yes. um, and can you bring and can you bring that forward? So it's a it's a pretty high hurdle, um, I think. Yes, it is. Now there's another
0: question coming out of the chat. How much do you think that the question of inheritance might play into the politics
1: of reparation cases? I'm not sure. I wish I could talk to the person to find out more about what they mean. I mean, you know, you know one way of thinking about um uh, reparations cases is a is a, is as a um a claiming, a reclaiming of a lost inheritance, right? So um mm-hmm. so you could sort of think about it that way that you have um now generations of people who have lost inheritance or, or, or generations of people who couldn't even build inheritance because there was just no wealth. And and you see that in the, um, you know, certainly in the social science literature around the, the wealth discrepancies that exist between black and white communities even today. And, you know, the ta Coates article is, is very good at showing, uh, you know, even as recently as the 1950s and 60s, she didn't, you know, for lots of historical reasons, black families, many black families didn't even have the house to pass down to their children, right, which is a yes. significant driver of wealth for um, families in the 20th century. So, you know, certainly it's about inheritance lost and, lost and, and, and gained, uh, the reparations piece for sure.
0: Mhm. And again I'm getting questions, so I'm just going to throw these questions sure. out to
1: you. Sure. Uh sure.
0: reparation cases for only enslavement
1: that can be proven. I'm not understanding. I don't think I understand the question.
0: Uh she is basically wanting to know do oh, you I ha- it, looking... it, it, are you yeah, only dealing with enslavement?
1: Yes. I mean this so this is there's there's just uh, I write only about one, one particular case at length. And this the the claim in this case is that enslaved um men and women who were the um ancestors of the people and the eight plaintiffs in the class action suit, um, were uh uh that, that wealth was made um you, with their unpaid labor. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But there's been other reparations cases. So, for example, the the, the attorney initially that Deidre Farmer-Paleman and the other plaintiffs are working with is a man named Edward Sagan, who had a few years before um, in the late 90s or early 2000s been successful in um, getting reparations for Holocaust survivors from the Swiss government. And um, another of her lawyers had been involved in getting, um, I think, a, a kind of form of reparations for. Um, Japanese Americans who had been interned. So it's not um, uh, that reparations cases aren't successful in the courts, but it's because there's been um, historically so much resistance that I I can only gloss in the book because the reparations piece is only, you know, 20% of a book that's about lots of other things as well. Um, But, uh, you know, it's the, the burden for people of the descendants of slaves who have been Denied the opportunity really to even have a fair hearing hearing about reparations gets gets increasingly high with each higher with each generation because you are then one more generation removed from the the you know what the court understands as the injured party mhm.
0: Now I'm checking because I have I have one of the chatters telling me that they called in but I can't see them so that they could speak. So I, uh, caller, please call back so that you can uh ask your question because I don't see you in the chat room. Press one uh when you call. Uh the number for those who want to call in to ask a question is six four six two zero zero oh four nine one and please press one uh so that I can see you. okay I see you uh so we do have a caller area code two oh two yes you have a question uh, or a comment? Yeah I was trying to clarify my question about um inheritance. What so I was, I was asking what what basically what I was trying to ask is okay when you're dealing with uh, reparations. I mean, it's common knowledge in the Black genealogy community that a lot, of, most of us, probably almost all of us in this country, have some white grandfather, great grandfather. Some of those may be more prominent or famous, or even elected officials. You know, what have you? Sure. Um, so my my question was, do you, do you think that that plays like you know obviously like the Jefferson Hemings case? You know, is probably the most popular one. Do you? How much of mm-hmm. a role do you think that that plays into the kind of obstruction? that folks have faced in trying to pursue actual reparations cases.
1: Yes. I mean, I think it's a slightly, it's a slightly, I would say sort of parallel issue. Um, You know, we know that, uh, that, uh, you know, even in families that in contemporary families that have nothing to do with the sort of the, the sort of era of plantation slavery, that inheritance can be a very tricky thing. You know, who gets it, who doesn't get it, who's part of the family, who gets cut out, who gets included. Um, but we know that um, that, you know, we the way that we had understood up until racial slavery in the Americas families to work. I mean, like if we think about, you know, Greece for ancient Greece, for example, um, that the the sort of the status of the father was the status of the child. So if you had an um, ancient Greece um, and uh, uh, Norlando Patterson um, has a, a terrific book about this. He's a Harvard sociologist. In ancient Greece, if the father, you know, impregnated a, a slave, a slave woman that he owned, the child born of that union would be free and would take on the status of the father, right? But when you have racial slavery in the United States, the status goes to the mother in those cases, right? Or that father or mother, the slave status, or the, in in fact, indeed, the stigmata, or the caste of being black in a kind of slave context. Um, And a slave plantation context means that, you know, slavery is always a kind of master category, or race is a master category that always moves forward. And that really works, cuts against the grain of sort of prior inheritance, not only laws, but also norms. So, you know, the issue of kind of race and caste, um, and and racial slavery really kind of give a lie to or undo a lot of as the Thomas Jefferson Hemings case makes clear a lot of what were often standard or normative traditions for how we pass on inheritance.
0: Right, right. Well, you know, there's a, a, a another issue, and I just want you to to share what you think about this because we do see that so many people are testing now and but when they hear the whole issue of uh reparations does it conjure up some kind of fear that now you're going to have all of these individuals out here suing because they they have the evidence to show that indeed they they have uh, ancestral roots on the continent of Africa and uh will that frighten people and I don't mean African Americans, but I mean people of European ancestry into communicating with their the cousins that are identified through the the
1: various DNA tests. I Bernice, I think it's already frightened people. I mean I think that, you know, um that you know, the fact that we can't even pass a bill to have a conversation is a really striking thing to me, you know? Um that this Conyers bill cannot, you know, move forward to a national conversation about this yes. striking. I think it's also, but we, I think we also see it in genealogy, right? So you see it when, um, you know, people are, you know, you get your test from Ancestry. dot com, you know, or Ancestry uh, DNA, for example, and you, you know, you upload your markers and you're trying to find DNA cousins and you know, people have been increasingly interested in and the, the the sort of links that people will go to to either not open or try to get someone else to open up their family tree, you know, in and in some software so people can see where there's overlaps, right? And I think, yes, you know, you can think of that as an element of that same kind of, I mean, it could just be disinterest or someone doesn't want to be bothered, but, you know, particularly when there are, um, these are interracial efforts, right? Um African-American genealogists asking, you know, um, trying to get assistance from, you know, European or mostly European genealogists to find out more information. You know, I think that suggests that there's, I mean, I don't know if I would use fear, but there's resistance, disease, um, you know, hyphen ease. uh, And, you know, I think it's unfortunate because, you know, the big takeaway – of genetics research over you know certainly the last twenty years is that you know the preponderance of the evidence shows that we're more alike than not alike and and that um you know sort of phenotypic racial differences um uh shouldn't matter in family trees as much as much you shouldn't have as much significance in family trees as we give them um and yet you know that's not how societies are arranged
0: right right, and unless people are willing to come to the table and a as Sharon as say, Morgan would say. Yes. Yes, yes. We, we we still have this dialogue that's that's not taking place. That's and right. so coming to the table is certainly one way for us to at least begin to share our differences and as well as our commonalities. That's right. Well this has really been uh an interesting discussion. Now the, 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 there has been a question here and I haven't asked you yet they want to know have you had your dna tested
1: yes yes i did um uh, in 2010 i did because this question came up so much when i was in the process of writing the book um i did um the, i did one mitochondrial test with african ancestry and um i did this test in this company because i did it as a part of a big reveal ceremony as you know bernice i write a lot about the evolution of the reveals you suggested which really begins as a small kind of um small-scale marketing uh, kind of tool, um, you know, uh, as these genetic ancestry companies, particularly African Ancestry, are getting underway in the early aught. So they're testing newscasters and celebrities, and, you know, one of the first people they test is LeVar Burton because they think wouldn't it be great to, you know, sort of have Kunte Kente's, you know, roots, genetic roots revealed. So, and that really evolved, as you said, um, you know, on the shows. And it really, I saw the, the reveal become really important for, um, the genetic genealogist that I spoke to over the course of the decade or so that I, I did the pro- worked on this project most intently. And so I wanted to do something with the reveal. And so I end up in Atlanta um, on in this ballroom, on the stage of a ballroom at an event put on by the Leon Sullivan Foundation, and I get my genetic ancestry reveal uh, from Dr. Rick Kittles, and he's there with Isaiah Washington, who's the MC and i'm I learned that I've inferred among other groups to have uh, in Cameroon to have um an inference to the Bamaleke group in Cameroon, and that was also the same night where about half an hour later um the um, genetic ancestry reveals of uh, Martin Luther King III Third and Julius Garvey, the son of Marcus Garvey, would also be prevent- presented so it was it was quite a quite a night. Yes,
0: it was quite a night, I'm sure. Now, there's a question. uh, What does, uh, at least what do you think about the way testing has morphed into finding the living or finding unknown new relatives?
1: Yes, this is a brave new world. I mean, I think Oh, it's hard. I mean, you know, one thing about writing, uh, you know, I write writing about a little bit about about the Tom, the Jefferson Hemings and a little bit about the African burial ground is that in these cases, you're dealing with remains. And so, you know, the sort of culture is social sociality and culture is not a living thing. Um, you know, I think it's complicated when people then do things like uh, sort of get samples surreptitiously and send them in to see if people are related to them or to to find, you know, relatives that they might not know by take, taking people's DNA that they, you know, with or without their permission. Um, you know, but we're in a moment where, uh, you know, there's a um, a wonderful artist named um, Heather Dewey, uh, which is the hatborg the last name, who, you know, has gone around city streets and picked up cigarette butts and these sorts of things and is, is sampling the DNA off of them and trying to do, kind of facial reconstruction based on what we know from scientific papers about the various markers she's able to find from this work. And so, you know, I think we're increasingly entering an age where you know, the social life of DNA is getting bigger and bigger. More things in life will be about DNA from precision medicine to the expansion of familial searching in the criminal justice system. Uh so, you know, what do I think about it? I think it's getting bigger and more profuse and more significant and you know, that there'll have to be, I think, some reckoning um, and some, you know, some attempt to have some sort of safeguards. Because as I say in the book, I mean, DNA really is the ultimate big data. You know, we worry about leaks in big data and big data sets being used by Facebook and social media companies without our permission. But, you know, DNA is the most intimate data and it's data that can be given information in all different registers. So it can Tell you something in a criminal justice system, sitting in a medical setting, in a genealogical, genealogical setting—all the very same sample. So it's um, it's quite a quite a moment. It is
0: quite a moment, and it looks like it's here to stay. And you can't almost go to a genealogy conference now without having genetic genealogy as part of the uh, agenda. And so but, yeah. it is here to. It is definitely here to stay. So uh, you know, I'm I'm just really glad that you have come on tonight to discuss your research, to talk about the social life of DNA. I'm sure that there's a whole lot more going on that you can add to your book now. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. But this has this has certainly been a very very interesting uh, discussion for for all of us tonight. So thank you. So, very much for uh, coming on. And for those of you who would like to read this book, The Social Life of DNA Race, Reparations, and Reconciliation After the Zone, uh, go to Amazon.com and you can get a copy of this book. So, thank you so much. I Bernie, just want thank everyone to thank you so much. All right. Well, hey, everybody. I I do have a new sponsor. I mentioned uh, the new sponsor earlier, and you can get useful tips, resources, and insight to all things book publishing on the Write Books That Sell Now weekly podcast. Subscribe to the feed at writebooksthatsellnow.com and get ready to learn how to write, Publish and market your book to tell the stories of your ancestors and leave a lasting legacy for your family. That's writebooksthatsellnow.com. So thank you so much, Dr. Alondra Nelson, for joining us tonight. And please remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond, and also, hey, DNA testing. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and at com Facebook pages, And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. I'm also a sponsor of this show, and my website is www.geniebroots.com, and I look forward to all of you. Joining me next Thursday, this is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Alondra.
1: Good night, and thanks, everyone, for joining. Thank you.